Exodus 20, verses 1 through 6. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Throughout the biblical literature, God gives pretty serious injunctions against the practice of idolatry, like what we've seen here in Exodus 20 as part of the famous Ten Commandments. And reading this, reading language that seems like really harsh, right? God saying, I'm a jealous God. And it's such a big deal, you know, the hyperbole of punishing children up to the fourth, you know, third and fourth generation and showing love to thousands of generations that keep the commandments seems, it seems pretty harsh to us today. It seems a bit like a, a bit of a cultural peculiarity. But in today's episode, I want to offer some contextual reframing of the concept of idolatry to help us understand the role of art and symbol in our quest to understand meaning and existential significance. It was such a joy to be joined last week by my friend, singer-songwriter Andy Squires. If you haven't listened to that conversation, I'd encourage you to do so. It was such a profitable conversation for me, and it gave me a lot of things to think about over this past week. We've also talked quite a bit about the intersection of theology and culture in our Christ in Culture series that you can go back into the archives and listen through. I, I highly encourage you to do so. It's probably one of the most popular series. I've done on this podcast, and that happened sometime last year. I'll provide a link in the description of this podcast. But in that conversation with Andy and in the Christ and Culture series, you know, I've, I've talked at length about the role of the aesthetic and its relation to that domain of invisible values, the domain of these invisible guiding stories and conceptions of God that we can call spirit. Through our impulse that we have to act, it seems like this innate impulse to act as sub-creators in the world, we, we try to make manifest that invisible domain of our values, that invisible domain of our guiding story, the, our, our conceptions of God, that domain of spirit. We, we try to make that domain visible in the here and now through aesthetics. So let's think of a practical example here to make this, maybe some of this terminology more helpful. Let's say someone has a value, right? A value that exists. A value is invisible. It, you know, whether you want to consider this value just a, a you know, a, a psychological category or whether you're more comfortable with a notion of a sort of an actual domain of spirit, of spiritual beings, whatever that, whatever you feel comfortable with, I don't want you to get hung up on that. Just picture somebody that has, let's say, a, you, you have a value for beauty. So you conceive of something beautiful, like perhaps as you try to express and lay a hold of that value of beauty, you conceive of something beautiful like a sunset. 
And then in order to maybe try to share your conception of beauty, because you really want to share that value with someone, you try to say, paint a picture, paint a picture of a sunset. I mean, like literally, you know, I'm not just saying paint a picture as a metaphor for describing it, but you actually go with a, you know, with a paintbrush and paints and an easel and you paint a sunset. Now, if you as the artist, as a, a sub-creator, if you've, if you've labored well in your craft and you're, you're equipped with the right tools to best capture that conception of beauty, someone might look at your painting. And, and as they look at your painting, as they look at your aesthetic symbol of beauty, it might open up a window in them. It might open up a window to that, we could say, that spirit of beauty. And then as that happens, their, their, conscious, their conscious attention and awareness of beauty might be shifted in a way that they hadn't been previously aware of. With a glimpse into the beautiful, they might be momentarily filled with awe and wonder. This is why in our culture we have such a value for the arts is because we are we're pursuing that that sort of transformation of our consciousness to see something new to be taken somewhere. We use words like that, phrases like that, like man that 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 music really took me somewhere or that movie. Man, it just it, it, it captured me my attention. And what we're describing is that maybe that sense of awe and wonder, that great mysterious thing that happens in our minds as we have our attention maybe shifted away from something that we once thought was most relevant for our attention to behold, and now it's shifted into something, let's say, an appreciation of beauty. And beauty in and of itself, right, is a value. It's invisible but it's been made, or at least a facet of beauty, you've done your best to capture in that picture, right? So in the ancient world, we might see values like beauty, that's a common one, uh, wisdom, justice, right? That's my son's name. <laughs> uh, we, we see in the ancient world, we often see these values personified in, aesthet in aesthetic symbols. And so one familiar example from ancient Greek culture, it, and they, the ancient Greeks, you know, they, they might have been the masters of this. You know, the, the Egyptians are probably up in, in running for that, that, that uh, category of the best at capturing their guiding stories and their, their values into, into symbols. You might think, well, the Romans, but in a lot of ways, the Romans, they were just kind of copying the Greeks anyway. So let's think of like a familiar example from ancient Greek culture. And let's think about how the ancient Greeks attempted to express their value of wisdom. And one of the ways that they did that, the most prominent way that we could point to is a symbolic representation of wisdom is in the personification of wisdom as a woman, the goddess Athena. In Athens, the, and you could actually still go to Athens today and see the remnants of, of this, this sort of 
uh, sim- aesthetic symbol to wisdom, at least what, what we have that remains. In Athens, the temple to wisdom was the Parthenon, right? I mean, you're probably familiar with the Parthenon. You can, you've, you've all seen pictures of that in school. The Parthenon sat atop the Acropolis overlooking the city, which is significant because it's exalted to a high place. You know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of deep connection to that notion of high places and why altars and idols were placed in high places. It's a, it is a, even the placing of it up high is a symbolic representation of our sort of looking up as a, as a way of searching for transcendence, of looking beyond our imminent frame. And so, Oftentimes, you might have something like the Parthenon in Athens placed atop a high mountain. In this case, it's overlooking the city. It is the pinnacle. It's, a, it's another way of saying this is, one, this is our supreme value. And so within the Parthenon, though, there was the sacred statue of a woman, the goddess Athena, the, the symbolic personification of wisdom. So the question comes up, right? You see that stuff and you go, hey, you know, just kind of like stepping back just as an observer of beauty. You look at the Parthenon, you might look at a statue of Athena and go, man, that that is really beautiful. And I can can actually see the wisdom in the brilliance of how they actually designed this temple. And you can have an appreciation for it. So it can be really weird, especially for maybe some of you that didn't grow up with these sorts of biblical narratives, and maybe you grew up with just a a wider appreciation for arts, and then you became somebody that uh, was maybe a follower of Jesus, or you started attending church, and then then you read, you know, things like in the Ten Commandments that these really harsh and and very, very the strong language about not making idols, and you go, oh, what was the, what's the big deal? Why does the God of Israel, the God who claims to be beyond all other gods and spirits, why does he command that Israel not try to make aesthetic representations of who he is? And yet, like, you could even step back even further as you start, you look at that and you go, okay, why wasn't that allowed? And yet you could do something like, 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 build these other sacred symbols, symbols like the furnishings in the tabernacle of Moses, you know, like the Ark of the Covenant or, or maybe the Temple of Solomon, which were, these are considered holy, they're considered sacred symbols, sacred sites. Why is that permissible? And even if we want to even take this a step further in thinking about aesthetic symbols. Well, why was it even permissible that they have a written language that tells the story of God in the Torah, but God yet still still takes very seriously that they not try to, to capture God in his essence into a symbol? Those are really good questions. They're the very profound questions that get us to consider what might possibly be the key distinction that demarks the dividing line between a symbol, an aesthetic symbol as an idol, or it functioning as perhaps an icon. 
right? A, a window into the sacred. I think that key distinction has to do with the spiritual and the psychological intentions of both the artist and the observer. And I think it has profound implications on our lives in our culture today and how we interact with symbols and live in an perhaps a more saturated symbolic world than at any other time in, in human history. We are so sim- surrounded everywhere we look with these aesthetic symbols. We consume stories represented in you know Netflix and movies. We talked about that a few, few episodes ago. In books, in advertisements, in magazines, we scroll through our phone, we see symbols, symbols, symbols. So I think uh, understanding the where that de- the line of demarcation is between an idol and an icon is a really important endeavor for us to try to explore together. So what what is the difference between an idol and an icon? An idol is a symbol which stunts our spiritual and psychological drive to continue onward into the unending ocean of wonder, awe, and experiential love that we call God. And I, and I say that we call God because I confess that this infinite ground of being, the holy and the holy other than isn't confined to this three-letter categorization system. G-O-D isn't a proper name. It's, we, we, we have to confess that even when we write that down, we write G-O-D down, that we're not actually containing the essence of God. It's a, a feeble attempt, but we have to attempt it. It's a feeble attempt to point to the ineffable in some way that both you and I, we can share together. So that's why I say, you know, that we call that which is uh, the unending ocean of wonder, awe, experiential love, the, the very ground of being itself, that which is necessary. These are all this is descriptive language to try to get at with more detail what I mean when I actually use the symbols in our alphabet G-O-D. And I think it's important to say that because other people might use G-O-D and actually be pointing to something else, right? But in all of it, I'd hope that when we use that, what we're saying is we are, we are pointing to the ineffable, we are pointing to that which is beyond language. I say that, but I also confess to try and capture what is ultimately beyond categorization, language, and conception, and to say that, you know, this is no mere symbol pointing to a reality beyond. This is the limit of knowledge and experience is false and dangerous. And I think that that's at the core of idolatry. The the idol is offered to the world as the end of our pursuits. The idol is offered to us as a substitute for our unending desire to know and to be known. 
so and and people people may bow before or, or pray to a symbol as their end pursuit, and this can be going back into antiquity. Like could be, for example, what people may do with a statue to Athena, right? Or or bowing before the idol of Nebuchadnezzar as the representation of supreme value in Babylonian culture. It could be to make this more. Pr- practically relevant to you and I today. It could be people in reverent postures of worship aimed towards an aesthetic symbol of the American flag at a football game. The one filled with awe as they look at the symbol deceives themselves if they think that the value or the spirit presented in that symbol will satisfy the This doesn't mean, though, that values like wisdom, which the Greeks personified as Athena, or even some of the values one may think about when they sing the the American national anthem as they face the American flag, doesn't mean that some of those values aren't good. There is good in our values of, of the American's guiding story. It's not devoid of that. Uh, you know, when somebody, I, I don't think that when somebody uh, had a football game and they're singing the national anthem and, and maybe as they sing and they look at that symbol and that symbol offers them a, a sort of aesthetic doorway to think of a value that they have, say the value of maybe sacrifice, right? And they think about a grandparent, you know, like both of my grandfathers, uh, served and fought in World War II. And, you know, I'm not going to unpack the sort of ethics of war in this episode. We have, you know, done that in, I think, year one of this podcast, talked about um, Christian attitudes towards war. But what I could look at and go and say, man, my, my grandfathers were willing to risk their own life for a cause that they believed was bigger than themselves. They're willing to do that, perhaps even motivated just to preserve the lives of their family members, to preserve the lives of people they thought, especially in the case of World War II, were innocent of wrongdoing and were being threatened by unjust powers. And I can look at that And I could feel a sort of well of emotion as I sing, God bless America. No, it's not God bless America. That's not the national anthem. It should be, though. It's a much easier song to sing. You know, beautiful, full spacious skies. And I'm singing that and I'm looking at the flag. And I might feel these certain emotions well up as I consider the invisible values that I associate with that symbol. And those don't necessarily, those could actually be Good. There could be good in that, but there is a huge difference between a good and the good, capital G. A good, which makes a counterfeit claim to be the good, creates a counterfeit guiding story. And this is the thing we have to be very cautious of, even as Americans, where I do think there's a lot of American values which are good. The danger is that we take those values and we consider them to be the good. And we consider 
the sort of American story to be the ultimate guiding story for all of human history, for every tribe and tongue. A good which makes the counterfeit claim to be the good creates a counterfeit guiding story. Because it's a distortion of reality as reality should function, the playing out of this counterfeit guiding story leads to dysfunction. And I'd argue this is the entire point of the Apostle Paul's argument in Romans 1. If you're not familiar with that, take some time, maybe pause, read Romans 1. Many of you that have had long histories of church experience in Christian context are familiar with that passage. I think this is the point of Paul's argument in Romans 1. The created thing is not to be substituted for the creator as the end goal of human pursuits and adoration. A good should not be substituted for the good. In doing so, the functional picture of reality, the ordered picture of the way reality is supposed to function, is then replaced with disorder and dysfunction. And I think this is really what what Paul means when he talks about those who, quote, suppress the truth. Suppression is the right word here. It's the right word to consider because suppression, suppression suggests that the full picture is being forcibly limited. It's it's like cropping out the picture, saying, hey, the full picture is this when it's not. The idol says the truth ends here when the unending glory of that which cannot be finitely contained is replaced by a symbol of the finite as the end, it's idolatry. Replacing a good for the good, replacing created thing instead of creator, replacing the finite instead of the infinite is idolatry. But this doesn't mean we discard the finite aesthetic symbol as inherently idolatrous in itself. Symbols are not inherently idolatrous, and this maybe help us understand why God says you don't make any symbols to describe me in my essence, but here are some symbols that can help you understand the guiding story. Symbols that can help you understand facets of God's character and nature to get glimpses into what is, what should descend from the values of God into our value system. He allows for that and actually maybe even encourages that while giving the caution that we don't settle for the symbol itself as the end. We don't even settle for the value, the good value that might be behind that symbol. Does that make sense? We don't need to discard the finite. We don't discard the arts. We don't make our buildings, our church buildings, our homes just devoid of symbol, as if doing that wasn't a symbol in and of itself. For the Apostle Paul, all of creation was a symbol. 
that was to serve as a sacred icon, a window to the good, an invitation into the unending knowledge of God. As sub-creators, we get to play in the good world, repurposing nature in our labor, right? That was the other category we've talked about in the Christ and Culture series. We have spirit, the invisible domain by which uh, our values and conceptions of God, the spirits, reside. We try to make that manifest in not only our aesthetic, but in our labor. And what is labor? Labor, again, is the repurposing of the natural world, shared benefit for individual benefit. So as sub-creators, we actually get to play in, the good, in this good world, and we, we can repurpose nature in our labor to make sacred symbols as icons. God blessed Israel's symbol-making to bear witness to the true guiding story. Let's maybe even go back and, and think about this example with Moses' tabernacle. The, the tabernacle of Moses, if you're familiar with it, you, maybe you can even picture some of the flannel graphs you saw in Sunday school or pictures you've seen in study Bibles or whatever the case may be, that the tabernacle of Moses was designed to be a symbolic mini-Eden, even in their wilderness. And think about how this, this guiding story, this central feature of their guiding story is aesthetically communicated in symbol, like the entrance the entrance to the to the tabernacle is facing eastward and it's guarded by cherubim angels similar to the the angels that were guarding the entrance to the garden of eden the the lampstand in the tabernacle is symbolic of the tree of life and even as you were to maybe move your way into the interior of the tabernacle heading towards the holy of holies the the central place in the tabernacle what you would see is this increasing uh, procession of precious metals that they use to adorn. So you move, as you move into the interior of the tabernacle, you move from bronze on the exterior to silver as you move more to the interior to gold adorned furnishings as you move to the Holy of Holies. But even like, even when you got to the Holy of Holies, there wasn't a statue of God like there would be in other maybe tabernacles, temples. And then again, I would just say as a footnote, I don't, the symbol wasn't as important. The symbol, the symbol was the doorway, the, the contextual cultural doorway for Israel to in, hopefully better understand God and his story. But, you know, we don't need to make tabernacles today for a multitude of reasons. One, because they aren't contextually relevant. But they were contextually relevant to ancient Near Eastern peoples, and temples certainly were. And even in the, the Roman Mediterranean world, much later in, uh, in, in the history of the world, we see things, again, like the Parthenon, and we see things like the temples at Ephesus. You know, these temples had a god uh, as a statue of the god in their holy of holies, or what would be the holy of holies, in oftentimes in their own temples. But you don't have that. And it's really clear, it's really important that we get this. We do have something in the center of the holy of holies. You have the Ark of the Covenant, but it was really clear. The symbolic clarity here is not 
because it doesn't look like um, an image of a human or an animal. The, the Ark of the Covenant is really clear. This is the place where the invisible God is enthroned as king of creation, you know, and he sits upon his promise to his people, but they never conceptually try to, to grasp in a symbol the God that goes beyond categorization and description. There's, in a sense, like an empty space in between those angels on the Ark of the Covenant that you might go, this is kind of disappointing. Where's the conception of God? And the, the, the wonder of this is that you would get all the way in and you'd be surrounded by wonder, wonder pointing to a greater wonder. Man, that's like profound. This was a symbolic representation of the guiding story of their guiding story, what God's story to Israel was that was supposed to guide them in their vocational call. But it this is also a distinguishing revelation to Israel about the nature of God compared to their ancient Near Eastern neighbors. You don't see this among ancient, the ancient Near Eastern neighbors of Israel. Maybe the closest to, to get this concept would be some of the Greek philosophers like Plato, who pointed to this idea of, a, of the good which transcends all other goods. But this is really, really unique to Israel. And, and the message is clear to them. This is a, like a really important revelation in the history of humanity, <laughs> is that you know, Yahweh is not just another, like, tribal deity. Yahweh reveals himself to Israel as a God beyond compare, a God beyond categorization, a God beyond classification. The important point is that with the God above all, right, you might even have images that are kind of confusing to us, like uh, in some of the Psalms, God stands in the council of the gods and you go, what's that about? And it's clear, like even the beginning of this injunction that we started this podcast off in Exodus 20, you should have no other gods before me. It wasn't like a denial of potentially potent spiritual beings. It was that that might have been too hard for ancient Israelites to to grasp with, and it might not even have been true to say there isn't potent spiritual beings out there. We don't know. I, I don't want to delve into that. But the greater idea is that there was beyond all of that God, the holy, the where the wonder in whom, where, where these words fail to describe, the wonder does not end. The knowledge does not end. You can keep going and going and going and not exhaust the glory of God. And these symbols are intended to bear witness to that. And, and that's the point. They are bearing witness to an invitation to keep going. And this is why, boy, this is, this is so crucial because this actually grounds this idea that all of creation is intended to be an icon, an icon, a window into the inexhaustible glory in the exploration of God. This motivates us. This concept should motivate us to explore music and, and math and science, literature, theater, sports. Whatever the domain of wisdom may be, we 
we explore that with a sacramental mindset, a sacramental mindset that motivates us to be filled with excitement over the potential of discovery of some facet of the ineffable, the ineffable God, the the source of truth, goodness, and beauty, to see something that we may not have been consciously aware of before. That is not to say that God changes and that there's new things about God. There are new things that we've missed about what has been eternally true about him. Eventually, Moses' tabernacle was replaced. The Ark of the Covenant was lost. Well, I guess until Indiana Jones got it back from the Nazis. (laughs) And Solomon's temple was destroyed. The symbol can lose its sacredness, whether by becoming an idol or by simply becoming an irrelevant expression in a culture that no longer looks at that symbol in a way that produces proper awe. I want to conclude today with at least maybe one point of practical application here. As we consider how the symbol can lose its sacredness, the symbol can become an idol, or the symbol that we create and observe in the world can be an icon. Those of you listening with maybe more conservative predispositions, whether that's politically, right, or theologically, you you tend maybe to err on the side of, I want to conserve what's true about the past. Those of you that know you have that predisposition, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that predisposition. We'll get to progressives in a moment. But those with conservative predispositions should be aware of their propensity to hold on to their past symbols as idols. There are, th- there are ways in which the symbol becomes an idol when we cling to it as the end instead of the icon that leads us to the unending, infinite God. I think in a lot of ways, as a side note, you know, a lot of in, um, especially in evangelical churches, but this also happened in more high church traditions starting in the 90s, and I probably starting, honestly, starting before then, you know, the change really, we could go back to the the Jesus People movement in the late 60s, 70s, and uh, anyways, it, we actually, we saw what a lot of people call like worship wars. And what were those about? Well, those were about the proposed changes to the use of m- particular musical symbols, icons, in church worship. So you had this change where people maybe were feeling like some of the past symbols were were no longer displaying the glory of God. They were no longer an invitation in our cultural context to a pursuit of the ineffable, and they had become in and of themselves idols that were no longer, as people observed the symbol, it was not producing in them the awe that produces transformation. It wasn't opening them their their conscious awareness up to the activity of the Spirit, the nearness of God. It wasn't doing that. At least people felt that way. 
and they felt that there might be a something new happening as we maybe moved away from pipe organs and uh, choirs and choir robes to drums and guitars, you know, really the language of the hippie movement. That's really what it was. And what the, the transformation that we were seeing culturally as these counterculturals were becoming followers of the way of Jesus. And so, you know, decades after that happens, you know, the church can be slow to adapt. And we've talked about there's even some potential value in that, I believe, as we kind of test test out or the testing grounds of make sure this is really working and aiming the right direction. But when that shift happened, um, a lot of people like myself as a young person were really transformed by the inclusion of these new symbols, these new musical symbols, these new doorways into seeing something about God. And it communicated in a language that was helpful. It was more helpful to me I felt more of a sense of transcendence and wonder at that time when I was, you know, had a, someone with a guitar in their hand than a, a choir. Now that changes. It changes over time. It's even changed in my life. I actually, uh, I don't consume, I don't see a lot of what we might call contemporary worship as being filled with symbols that helps me go beyond the here and now to invite me into an ever-increasing journey of awe and wonder and discovery of the love of God. I don't feel that anymore, by and large part, um, in, in some of the same symbols I once did. I still see value. I mean, I still I'm, I haven't, you know, changed the way I help lead other people in worship to this, like, what we might call traditional expression. But even when we think about those terms, the traditional is simply, if we want to freeze the, what was perceived as a sacred symbol in that particular time, we just freeze that and try to keep translating over and over. And this gets to the, the caution I'd have for people with conservative predispositions is the propensity to hold on to the symbol past its expiration date. And to not be able to see that there may be new symbols that help us actually within our cultural context to be able to be invited on a sense of awe and wonder. And there is a real danger, a real danger that those that might have conservative predispositions might have to confusing transcendence, to having a sense in which they are they're confusing transcendence with nostalgia. Because both can be very powerful spiritual, psychological experiences. They can be very powerful experiences of meaning. Nostalgia can be a powerful substitute. There's value for nostalgia. I, I mean, I've had great conversations go all the way back to the conversation I had with Dr. Clay Rutledge back in, again, I think year one of this podcast, that nostalgia is really important because it helps us maybe in very uncertain times, we look back on the ways in which what's true, good, and beautiful was expressed in our life. But the experience of nostalgia isn't the same thing if we make it an idol. It's not the same thing as a genuine moment of transcendent wonder. So there's a danger there. There's a danger that we wouldn't be able to adapt and communicate with new symbols. There's a danger that we, are cl we might cling to the temple 
long after the temple, and I mean this as a symbol, as a metaphor, long after the temple has been replaced. Now, for those of you who have more progressive inclinations, my encouragement to you, and this doesn't just mean politically, we, we actually know from behavioral science there are, there are sort of pro, there are genetic predispositions that can lead people to have more conservative, just in general, conservative um, mindsets in multiple domains. And there are those that might be more inclined to what we would call progressive inclinations, where they are very um, much, much more inclined to consider the possibility of the future than to be looking for the truth of the past. And for those of you who have more progressive inclinations, one word of in- encouragement or caution might be for you as you think about the role of symbols in your life. Be suspicious. My encouragement to you is to be suspicious of cultural idols that create counterfeit guiding stories via the idol of progress. Progress in and of itself becomes an idol. And there's a significant distinction between being eschatologically minded, that is, an eye towards the future manifestation of God's rule, the the harmony of all creation, the restoration of all things, to be looking forward to that with an eschatological frame. There's a difference between that and making progress, the movement away from the past, the movement away from something else, to be the end of in and of itself. To just simply move away from a point in time or place where you once was isn't necessarily to move towards the good. And this is the real danger you should be aware of in your own predispositions, is the sense that movement in any direction is movement towards the good. I mean, capital G, ultimate good. And there are good things that you might move towards which can become an idol where you see it as an end in and of itself. We might see this with the notions of progress. We might see this with notions of things like inclusion, which again, including the least of these, is not, is certainly not a a perversion of the good. I think it's a, you know, in my reading (laughs) of the of the guiding story of Christian theology and biblical theology, I see central to the mission of Jesus, the inclusion and care for the poor, the widow, the, the orphan, the, the least of these, the marginalized and the oppressed. But there's a real danger in making inclusion in and of itself the idol. We have to remember that the temple, the temple, when Jesus came in, and chastised the religious leaders in the temple and kicked out the money changers. He wasn't doing that to replace the temple with a simply a bigger, more inclusive temple with its own new money changers. The temple was replaced by Christ himself. And there's, there's an important thing for you with the progressive inclinations to learn from that and be maybe suspicious of our own confirmation bias, suspicious of our own propensity to turn progress into 
an idol. There's much that is lost. If we go back even just to symbols in our church experience, there is much lost when we do away with hymns of the past. To simply move away with it and to go, you know, we're going to replace hymns. We're going to replace the the great is thy faithfulness, the how great thou art. We're going to replace that with just updated language that's filled with inclusivity and, uh, you know, all these values of the modern progressive mindset. We do that and we lose out on the truth that always has been. We lose out on something. We don't just burn down the temple. We see Christ as the temple and we see the, the value of symbols from the past being maybe recontextualized into our future. But this also applies outside of the bounds, outside of what we might think of as just symbolism within a, a church worship gathering. This, this has to do with language that we use and literature and film and storytelling. All of these, all of these are possible. All of these are aesthetic symbols. They are all inseparable from someone's invisible spirit. The, the domain of spirit, it's inseparable from their deepest held ideals, as we've talked about in the past. It's inseparable from that. So our ability to be able to see and distinguish in our own hearts whether or not we're treating the symbol as an idol or as an icon is an extremely important endeavor that we have to practice and practice together. To all of us, and one final practical encouragement, to all of us in our increasingly politicized times, having no other gods before God includes the God symbolized by the donkey and the God symbolized by the elephant. I've seen so much talk even about this virus that we are dealing with and living in, seemingly politicized into religious language, the religion of the donkey and the religion of the elephant, it, 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 it becomes to the point where maybe this, those gods are being worshipped above the ineffable, uncreated creator. So be aware of that. Be aware of how you're filtering stories to maybe fit within one of those two, and they are substitute religions. There is much good that you are probably attracted to in whatever one of those two political platforms you might find yourself most attracted to. But just bear in mind that a good is not the good. The elevation of a good creates a dysfunctional guiding story. I want to thank you for listening to today's episode, and I want to give extra special thanks to the Theology 201 level supporters in the Deep Talks Patreon community, people like Mark, Luke H., Tim K., Paul R. Thank you for your support. Thank you to all of you in the Deep Talks Patreon community. This program can't happen without your support, so thank you. If you wanted to get involved, there are tiered rewards. You can jump into that Deep Talks Patreon community for as little as $2 a month. And then you get access to some other bonus things I like to try to share with people as an expression of thanks for them seeing the value in supporting this work. Also respond to all the questions and messages I get from patrons over on that Patreon platform. So 
If that's something you're interested in, like having continued dialogue, uh, maybe consider joining there. There's other ways you can support this podcast, like leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, sharing what you've been learning and listening to with friends on social media. And as always, I welcome hearing from you guys over on Twitter, the things that you've been getting out of these podcasts, or even the things you might have disagreements, questions about. Love hearing about those too. I really value having nuanced dialogue, exchange of ideas with people. I learn from it. I learn from the questions. I learn from the feedback. So I'd, I'd love to hear from you. You can find a link to uh, where you can connect with me on Twitter in the description of this podcast as well. Well, I hope all of you are staying well and healthy out there. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, we'll talk again soon.